Well, if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 2? Have you ever tried to get a dog to see something by pointing to it? Maybe trying to get him to see a, a little bit of food on the floor that you want him to clean up? It can be frustrating when you try to point food out to a dog because they don't look at what you're pointing at, they look at your finger. Maybe the pointer breed does a little bit better on this score, but most dogs don't get what you're doing when you point. They can't see that imaginary laser pointer that goes from your finger to the floor. Well, I wonder if many of us celebrate Christmas in a similar way. We look at the wrong thing, perhaps. Now, of course, that's true for those who simply celebrate Christmas culturally and familially. It's just tree and presents and parties and goofy Christmas sweaters. But I think it's also possibly true for those who celebrate Christmas more religiously. It's possible that we look at the wrong thing. Oh, we know the story of Jesus' birth. Maybe you have a tradition of reading Luke 2 with your family on Christmas Day. We all have our favorite parts of the story. Maybe yours is the shepherds or the star or the wise men or the cattle or the angels singing. Maybe you have your favorite manger scene at your house. You get it out every year. You, you like to look at it. You imagine what it would be like to be there. And in many ways, we should do all of that. In many ways, the Bible records for us in the story of Jesus' birth are not unimportant details. And they are, truly are full of wonder, full of awe. You even see Mary several times in Luke 2. It says she treasured these things in her heart. She pondered these things. She wondered and awed at them. But maybe we're looking at the finger sometimes and not the thing to which it points. And I don't just mean that Christmas is about Jesus, that he's the reason for the season. I don't just mean that he was born and so stop staring at the cattle. What I mean is that there's meaning behind all the stories. There's meaning behind the details of the stories that we have in our Bibles about Jesus' birth. You see, the Bible writers gave us peculiar details. Presumably, a lot happened around the birth of Jesus. And they give us certain stories. And those certain stories are in our Bibles not just because they're true, they are, and not just because they're weird and wonderful, they are. These details in the story point to the need for the coming of Jesus, the meaning of his birth. There's a message in the details of the story. And to not see the meaning and the message of parts of the story of Jesus' coming is to stare at the finger and not, not the food. So let me give you an example. It's in Matthew 2, the wise men. Let's ask ourselves this morning why they're in the story. Not what happened, but why they're in the story and what it means that this was part of Jesus' birth or thereafter. In order to do that well, we won't just do it in Matthew 2, but we'll also go to other parts of the Bible. Now, I remember the first time I saw Google Earth. Hopefully you've encountered Google Earth already. 
The first time I saw it, I thought it was so fun to just type in a different address and move. So you're in Boston on a street level, and you hit Albuquerque, enter. And what happens? Zooms out, right? 2,000 feet in the air or something. Then 2,000 feet, or 2,000 miles, rather, over to Albuquerque, and then zooms back into the street level here. It feels like you're a superhero who can jump across the country. It's fun. Well, I'd like to try something similar today with this story of the wise men. Not geographically so, like Google Earth does, but chronologically so. On a timeline. We're going to be in a timeline of Matthew 2, first century, Jesus' birth. And then we're going to zoom out to Isaiah 60. And then we'll zoom in there. Then we'll zoom out again and go to the end of our Bibles in Revelation 21. Let's start with Matthew 2. Verses 1 through 3, we'll start there, where it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We'll skip down to verse 7 just to save some time. It says there, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We'll stop there. This is the story of the Magi. It's the story of Jesus' birth. It's one of the key accounts of Jesus' birth, the other being Luke 2. Really, we could say Jesus' coming is about light appearing. Light came into the world with the coming of Jesus. Light is one way of describing Jesus' personhood, his coming, and his salvation. That's the first thing in your notes, light appearing. Like it says in John 12, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So it's fitting that at his birth, Jesus' coming was announced to wise men from afar with the light of a star. And what was this star? Well, it probably was supernatural, maybe not a literal star. It might have been an angel. It may have been a a glowing spot of glory somehow. The Lord can do anything. The fact that it moves and appears and then disappears and reappears and settles over the place where Jesus is might tend to, to point to the fact that it's not a literal star way out there, miles and miles away, but some sort of glory spot that leads them directly. It tells us that God's involved in the story, right? It tells us that God has intentions for for their part in the story. But who are they? 
Magi is how some translations translate or transliterate what these guys are. Wise men is in the ESV. We don't know that there were three of them. We see frankincense, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So some people surmise that these are three gifts for three guys. But these guys would have traveled with a massive entourage. They probably didn't even ride camels. They probably rode Arabian horses. And these guys, they've got a posse with them, right? They travel with their stuff, uh, you know, luggage and and trunks and, and, and conveniences of all kind. They're not exactly kings. They're actually king makers. They're advisors to kings. They're even appointers of kings when one king dies and a new one is needed. They're sort of like what, a, what cardinals are to popes. And they're apparently looking for a king. They come bearing gifts. They see the star. Somehow they know what it means. We don't know much more of the story than that. We don't know why they knew about the star. We don't know how much they knew about this one being born king of the Jews. We know they're on the lookout for a king. They come to honor him as they should. And we know what their response is. Whatever they didn't know when they were riding their way towards Bethlehem, They now know when they see the child, it says in verse 11, they fell down and worshipped him. And and that word for worship isn't a word that just means homage, like one king to another or one king bowing before a bigger king. This is worship of deity. They somehow see in the manger a baby who is the king. Now, you've got two responses in Matthew 2 to the birth of this king. You've got the Magi, who respond greatly. And then you've got Herod, King Herod. He's filled with fear and anger, and so he tries to kill Jesus when he sends the the wise men away to go search after the child so that I might come and worship him. It's just lying. He, he, He just wants to find out where he is so he can knock him off. And when an angel warns the wise men not to go back to Herod, that's when Herod gets all the more mad. Verse 16 of Matthew 2, Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under. It's amazing, isn't it? To try to wipe out one kid, he takes out almost a whole generation. Can you imagine the anguish in that town? Can you imagine what that, what that county, that town, that city, these people went through as they lost every boy two years and younger? Two responses to Jesus because he's light in light can be a good thing or a bad thing. We see in Matthew 4, look over there, just two chapters later, that Jesus' coming, verse 16, is coming in light, is a coming to darkness. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That's good. That sounds very good there. But in John chapter 3, Light is something that 
we often avoid and want to suppress. And that's what Herod's doing. In John 3, it says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus. But people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So Jesus is light. His coming is light appearing. It's not just light, but it's glory. It's truth. It's the exposing of sin. It's also light on the right path. It's a path of salvation. He's coming to darkness, sin, and blindness. You also have in this story Gentiles, Gentile king makers coming from afar to acknowledge his kingship and to worship him. But he's a threat to King Herod, so much so that he's loathed and he kills two-year-olds uh, two and under. What a weird story. Really, what a weird story this is. It's true. It's a true story. It's in our Bibles. I believe it to be true. But why is it in our Bibles? What's this here for? Why did God choose to reveal himself to these Gentile kingmakers, maybe from Babylon? Why them? Why not Herod? Why them and shepherds? Right? Because really, that's the only two people you've got in the story who are outside the family who have this miraculously revealed to them. Why shepherds? Why wise men? Well, we can't go into the shepherds today, but we'll try to dig deeper into the wise men. So let's zoom out of Bethlehem in the first century, put your Google Earth glasses on, and let's go back 700 years before this, more than 700 years before, to zoom into the book of Isaiah. There we see light anticipated. you got light appearing, in Bethlehem in the first century, 750 years or so back, you got light anticipated. Turn to Isaiah. We'll start in, verse, uh, start in chapter 59. We'll get to chapter 60. That's where we see light coming, glory rising. But you need to back up a few verses into chapter 59 to see what's going on. If Matthew 2 is telling us about this weird and wonderful story about these wise men from the east, Isaiah 59 and 60 is telling us the need for such a weird and wonderful story. Let's start by reading Isaiah 59 and verse 14. We could actually look at verse 13 as well to see that there's sin being described and enumerated here, transgressions, denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, revolt, lying words. These all summarize the state of Judah at the time of Isaiah. Verse 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Now you have to understand how and why this summarizes what's going on in Isaiah's time. Isaiah writes his book over 50 dark years of biblical history. A very political book, really, as several kings are mentioned throughout. And the book begins with the death of a good king, King Uzziah. It's all downhill from there. 
The next two kings are faithless, ungodly men. For instance, you got King Ahaz, who partners up with the ungodly Assyrians for protection. And he even sends delegates to Assyria to learn their worship so that they might bring back Assyrian worship into Jerusalem and incorporate it with biblical worship. The next king is a godly one, Hezekiah. But the damage from Ahaz has already been done. So the Assyrians had a pact before with, with King Ahaz. But the Assyrians now realize that it's in their best interest not to partner up to Judah, but instead march in and take Jerusalem. So now 185,000 troops are marching toward Jerusalem from Assyria. That's in the middle of Isaiah's time. Hezekiah is a good king, remember? But he chickens out with 185,000 coming your way. He negotiates a partnership with Egypt. Even though the Lord said, just let this be and trust me. Just let this be and trust me. Just let this be and trust me. I will take care of it. Remember, he's the God who says, uh, just march around the city seven times and then blow the horn and the wall fall down. I'll just make it happen. So God can save them. Hezekiah, for a moment, doesn't believe it. Partners with Egypt. And yet, despite Hezekiah's sin, God still saves Jerusalem miraculously from the Assyrians because Hezekiah did one simple prayer. Nevertheless, because of his sin, he gets sick and he dies. So there goes the best king that you had in 50 years. And on top of all that, God tells Isaiah that the Babylonians will come and they will destroy Jerusalem and they will take you all away into captivity. That's coming. And in the meantime, a new king comes on the scene and it's the worst one just about in Jewish history. He's so bad, he eventually has Isaiah sawn in two. And then there throughout the whole book is the sin of the people. Their rebellion, their doubting the Lord, their grumbling, their complaining, their, their violence, their lying. On and on it goes. We could go to passage after passage, many of which describe their sin in graphic, violent terms. Sometimes... Their sin is described as whoredom. Are you getting the picture? This is Isaiah's life. These are the times and moments of the prophet Isaiah. And that's what verses 14 and 15 are alluding to when they talk about transgressions, revolt, righteousness turned in on itself, justice disappearing. It all seems hopeless. Hopeless because of sin. The reality of sin and evil should be obvious in the wake of the Newtown, Connecticut shooting. That is breathtakingly wicked, evil, sinful, perverted. Softer language, more morally neutral language will not do. The news tells you that. It cries for justice, doesn't it? What human being besides the one who did this doesn't think this is sick and wrong, unbelievable? 
But the problem isn't just evil out there. It's not just with him. It's not just with them. It's with me. It's with you. It's not just out there. It's within. Isaiah tells us this. The book of Isaiah shows us this. It's not just those who ignore God completely. It's not just the nations who make up their own idols as God. Or, or, or Israel, Judah, who makes up their own morality. Not just them that are in trouble. The religious, quote-unquote, are in trouble too. They too can't fix what's broken. Isaiah is practically a lone voice of fidelity in his days. But even Isaiah needed cleansing. That was in chapter 6 of Isaiah. He's a man of unclean lips. He needs cleansing. The Lord grants him cleansing there. It all seems hopeless. So back to chapter 59, verse 16. We see in the first half of it, God sees all this. He saw that there was no man, no man who does good, no man who's able to stand. He saw that there was no man. He wondered that there was no one to intercede, no one to fix this, no one to redeem, no one to go between God and the people. And then there's a turn in verse 16, the second half. God himself will do what's needed. There was no one to intercede. There was no one that's good enough. And so, then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. He's going to war. Helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He's a warrior king getting dressed for battle. And he's coming, according to verse 17, with both salvation and vengeance. Salvation and vengeance. He will save and redeem. He will also, according to verse 18, repay his enemies. And when he does this, his appearing will be universal. So look down, verse 19 shows us this. All the way from the west. All the way from the rising of the sun. That's where his glory will be. His appearing will be universal and it will be sudden. Like a rushing stream. He's a redeemer to those, verse 20, who turn, who turn from transgression, it says. In other words, those who repent, those who see their sin, acknowledge their sin, hate their sin, and call on him to rescue their sin. To those who do not repent, his coming is not nice or cute. It's trouble. It's big time trouble. Now, verse 20, let's read it, introduces a redeemer. A redeemer will come to Zion. But notice that's talking about a redeemer like it's another person. When it says a redeemer will come to Zion, that's God doing the talking. Another person besides God who's a redeemer? It's capital R in my Bible. And then you have a covenant mentioned in verse 21. 
It says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them. I think that them is God's people. I think he's reminding them of his covenant, which is his self-initiating love. His steadfast, loving kindness. His purpose to do what he promised. That God works in such a way that he's covenanted with himself. And he'll fulfill it. He's made this covenant with them. A covenant rooted in himself, but also involving a redeemer. And that's why in verse 21, it sounds like we're picking up a different conversation. It says, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. And then, my spirit is upon you. It went from them, plural, to singular you. It went from feminine to masculine. This is someone else. This isn't just God's people now. My spirit is upon you. Who is the you in verse 21? Well, I think that's God talking to the Redeemer. There's a Redeemer that will come. And this happens all through the book of Isaiah. One is coming. He'll be the true and final king. He'll be God's servant with a capital S. He'll be the ruler with a capital R. He'll be a warrior. He'll be a Redeemer, an anointed one. He'll be born, and yet he'll be eternal. He'll be a man, and yet he'll be a father, God, in a sense, according to Isaiah 9. He'll be majestic and glorious, and yet he'll suffer. You could call him Isaiah's mystery man, except... It's no mystery because we don't have one or two of these references to this mystery man, this redeemer. You got a lot. There are only one or two hints about someone who's going to be born of a virgin like Isaiah 7 says. You might pass it off as something weird, odd, we don't understand. But no, it just keeps going. You have Isaiah 7. We read it earlier. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us, God, will be born. Isaiah 9 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Well, these are well-known verses, especially at Christmas time. Maybe less known is Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. So from the stump of Jesse, you'll get a branch. There's a big branch called David. There's a little branch coming. Well, it's not so little. This branch from his roots will bear fruit. He's also the trunk. Do you get that? This branch will bear fruit from his roots. Roots. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. Knowledge and the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he'll judge the poor. He'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And in that day the root of Jesse. Who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. A sign of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place be glorious. 
Oh, I'm not done. Isaiah 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense is before him. And he will tend his flock like a shepherd. Jesus said he was the shepherd. His resting place. I'm sorry, he will gather the lambs in his arms. Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him, and he'll bring forth justice to the nations. Or Isaiah 49, there'll be a redeemer of Israel, his holy one. He'll be deeply despised by some, abhorred by the nation. Kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. Or chapter 52, behold, my servant, my servant shall act wisely. He'll be high and lifted up and he'll be exalted. Many, though, will be astonished because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. If you've been a Christian for some time, the the gospel bells are just ringing very loudly in your ears, aren't aren't they? And of course, Isaiah 53, probably the most famous of Isaiah's prophecies about one to come. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Redeemer, Messiah, anointed king, warrior, is also a servant a suffering servant, and a substitute sacrifice. He's the payment for sin. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I could go on and on in Isaiah 53. The rest of the chapter does the same thing. One more to show you. Of course, there's Isaiah 59, which we just read. And there, you see that this Redeemer exercises the covenant in such a way that his words, God's words, will be in his mouth. And those words will not depart from his mouth. It's an indication of faithfulness and truthfulness. And he will have an offspring that will also keep God's words forever he'll have a heritage a seed then here's the one more isaiah 61 verse 1 it says the spirit of the lord is upon me now remember in chapter 59 god was speaking to the redeemer and it said there my spirit is upon you now chapter 61 it's antiphonal there's a response your spirit is Upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to to build up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison to those who are bound, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You probably know that Jesus read these words in Luke chapter 4. He read it at the synagogue. 
Then he sat down and he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And when Jesus did that, he wasn't just saying he's the Isaiah 61 guy. He's saying he's Isaiah's mystery man, the redeemer, the one to come, the king, the Messiah, the anointed, the warrior. With that in mind, we're ready for chapter 60. This will go more quickly. But look at chapter 60, verse 1. What Isaiah 59 told us in a promise form about a Redeemer coming, Isaiah, now, Isaiah 60 now pictures for us what that will be like. It will be light. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth. It has, it will, it is. Thick darkness will cover the peoples. They'll be blinded in sin, covering up their sin. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And then from here, we've got some results. This glory will be universal. Not just for Judah. Not just for Jerusalem. All nations will join in this. A theme found many times in Isaiah that the other nations will come in to see. Kings will begin to recognize the reign of a greater kingdom. So look at verse 3. Nations shall come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Now, this is communicating the day of the Redeemer in some symbol-laden ways. It's using Old Testament contextualized language. So the city of Jerusalem here throughout Isaiah 60 is really just a metaphor for God's people of all times. It's not a geographically limited Zion. For one, you can't fit all the nations in the king's and all their camels, and all their stuff in the city of Jerusalem. It can't be a real city. It's talking about something bigger than Jerusalem, what we call the new Jerusalem, what we call the heavenly Zion. And they will come with gifts, like gold and frankincense. Yep, that's in verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They will bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Jesus, of course, in the New Testament is called the King of kings and Lord of lords. We're told in Philippians 2 that one day everyone will recognize this. When kings recognize it, though, it's a start, right? It's the start of something. Kings are promised here to recognize the reign of the one to come. And in this kingdom, the gates will remain open. They're never closed because there's... There's safety. You close the gates because of outside threat. You leave the gates open when there's nothing to worry about. Look at verse 11 of Isaiah 60. Your gates shall be open continually. Yes, for safety. Day and night they shall not be shut. But not just for safety. Also because there's the stream of people coming in. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. 
They're just coming and coming and coming. So that you would know, look at verse 16, that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer. This city, you're going to name the walls salvation. It'll either be salvation or judgment. Don't forget that. Remember, back in 59, it said he's coming with salvation and vengeance. He's coming here in chapter 60 for salvation, but some will perish. Verse 12 says, some will be utterly laid waste. But it will be light one way or another. Be light in glory. And for God's people who repent, who turn from their transgressions, they will eventually have light and glory radiating from themselves. And there's a transformation, a cosmic transformation. There's no need of the sun now. Look at verse 19 and 20. The sun shall be no more. Your light by day nor for brightness shall be the moon to give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, no more moon withdrawing itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Now, while that language is still fresh in your head, let's zoom out and zoom in one more place. Revelation 21, light awaits. More light awaits. We saw light appearing in Bethlehem. We saw light anticipated in the book of Isaiah. Now light still awaits in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what Revelation 21 talks about, the new heaven and the new earth. By the way, the only other place that phrase is used in the Bible is in Isaiah 65 and 66, also in Second Peter. But it's Isaiah language. So how does Revelation describe the new heaven and the new earth? Well, look at verse 4. Neither shall there be mourning. I just read that in Isaiah 60. Days of mourning shall be ended. Look at Revelation 21, verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Well, that's taken from Isaiah 55, a whole chapter on that theme. Look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, this offspring, this inheritance. Just like it said in chapter 59, that God's words won't depart out of the mouth of your offspring. Or verse 11 of Revelation 21. This place will have such riches in abundance. Its radiance will be like the most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Or in verse 18 and 19 of Revelation 21, the city is pure gold. It's adorned with every kind of jewel. Even better, look at verse 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Isaiah 60 said the same thing. No more light by the sun. The Lord will be your everlasting light. 
Revelation also picks up on the nations and kings when it says in verse 24, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory or their riches into it. Nations will come to your light, Isaiah said. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. In verse 25, the gates will never be shut in the new heaven and the new earth. There'll be no night there. There's no threat there. Just like Isaiah 60 promised. Revelation 21 is clearly connecting dots with Isaiah 60. And it's telling us the final fulfillment of Isaiah 60. So with a straight line between Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21... There's Matthew 2. It's on the same line. Don't look at the finger. Look at the thing to what it's pointing to. Do you see how this relates to the wise men? The wise men there show us it's the beginning of the end. Or better, it's the dawn of a new beginning. Jesus being light isn't just that he's bright or nice or even truthful. It's telling us that heaven is breaking into earth. Jesus' birth is the coming of a kingdom. And so now there's hope for the hopeless. There's salvation to the repentant. There's vengeance on the proud awaiting. You see, it's important to note that like Isaiah's day, we too live in a hopeless condition. Sin in ourselves, sin all around us, leaders that go astray, nations that are confused, some that are vulnerable, we're all helpless. Like like Isaiah 59 said, righteousness is far away, truth is lacking, there's no justice, there's no man out there, there's no one to intercede. Except Jesus. Jesus stepped in. Jesus steps in to fix it all. And he will fix it one way or another. In that sense, his birth was an intrusion. It wasn't invited. This is his world. He said, I'll fix it. It wasn't sweet and cute, his birth. Remember Isaiah 59 says there's no one to intercede. But then his arm brought him salvation. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. There's something behind the baby chub of a warrior king getting dressed for battle right there in Bethlehem. So there really are only two logical responses to the coming of this kind of king, Herod's and the Magi's. You're either Herod or you're a Magi. I mean, either bow in humble worship and faith to the king, the redeemer, God himself, or crucify him. That's what they said, crucify him. We're either desperate or we're defiant. 
This means that Christmas is not nice. I don't like that word nice. I'm sick of that word nice. I don't want to be a nice boy. Christmas isn't nice. You see, it's either radiant, exultant, thrilling, our only hope, a sun-eclipsing glory, or it's scary as hell. That's Christmas. He showed up. He showed up. And that's either good news or horrible news, depending on what side of the sword you fall on. Isaiah 60 ended with God saying, verse 22, I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten this. I will do this. We don't know when that time is. We do know when that first coming was. We do know now that he will come in two stages. So Revelation 21 is still to come, in a sense. This isn't the new heaven and the new earth. But heaven has already touched down. That's what Jesus was. God Hear, arise, shine, your light has come, glory has risen upon you. In his first coming, his majesty was cloaked. It was cloaked in humility and servantry and suffering and dying, but he will come again with his majesty on full display. He'll come in righteous judgment, and he has to. Doesn't he have to? Doesn't Connecticut remind us that he has to come? This world is too broken in rebellion for him to leave us alone. He is too righteous and he's too loving for him to ignore us. He already came once. And when he came, cloaked behind baby chub, was a glorious warrior, king, and God himself. The Magi saw it. The shepherds saw it. Mary and Joseph saw it. Do you see it? If you see it, then his coming again is a great thing. It's more good news. It's the new heaven and the new earth. It's thrilling. It's joy-filling. It's awe-filling. It's pure worship. It's righteousness prevailing. Only God can change our hearts so that we want that. Only God can change our hearts so we want him. Let's pray that he do that now. Father, we thank you for the rich tapestry of your word pray we would get it, pray we would see it, pray we would stand in awe of your plan, the wonder of your ways, the persistence of your goodness. Lord, we thank you for the covenant you've made with yourself to do us good, to do us good with all of your might. Thank you for your great repeated promises of the old covenant, the Old Testament. Thank you for their fulfillment in Jesus in the new. Lord, we praise you that he's come. We want others here to join us as Christians in recognizing his coming and recognizing his lordship, his, his salvation, 
That when he died at the cross, he died for sins, died in our place, died to see us forgiven and restored. He died to fix us. Lord, we want that message to be loud and clear here this morning. We want that message to resound from our lips all through this next year. And we want others to join in in believing it and receiving it and rejoicing in it and being freed by it. Only you can do it. And only you, Lord, can increase our faith and give us more joy. Only you can restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Only you can tell us once again through your word and by your spirit at work in our hearts that you have shed abroad your love in our hearts. You've covered us with your blood and love, Lord Jesus. It's done, and you'll finish it. We thank you for those great promises and many more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.